0: Well, one thing that I uh, really enjoy about cartoons is that, and you probably never would have suspected that of me, that I I like an occasional cartoon. But one thing that I like about cartoons is that you always know who the bad guy is, don't you? You don't have to wonder about it. It's pretty simple to pick him out because he's the guy that has you know, the handlebar mustache. And he's, you know, you know what I'm talking about? The handlebar mustache with the little curl at the end. He's the bad guy. That's how you know who the bad guy is. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be convenient if all of the bad guys in the world wore those little mustaches? Because then they'd be so easy to pick them out. I mean, think about this. Imagine taking your car to the mechanic. And if your mechanic looks like this guy right here, and he comes walking out of a back room somewhere of the auto shop... And as he comes walking out you know, out of this darkened back room, he tells you it's going to cost you 1200 bucks to change your muffler bearings, and while he's saying that, he's twirling the curl on the end of his mustache, you know that you probably need a second opinion, right? I just want you to know, if anybody ever tells you that you need to change your muffler bearings, you probably need a second opinion. Think about it. I mean, what if your doctor looked like this guy? What if you're going to see a doctor and you walk in and he looks like this guy and he comes into the exam room and he says, Hey, bad news. I just want you to know that uh, it looks like your upper corollaticular node is inflamed and we're going to need to do surgery right away. If that were to happen, I want to encourage you, get a second opinion, Right? Because this, your doctor's a bad guy if he looks like this. Or what about TV preachers? What if you tune into a, a preacher on TV and he looks like this guy? Well, you would know better than to send him money. No matter how much he tells you, how often he tells you that God is going to kill him if he doesn't raise a certain amount of money, you're going to know that he's up to something because he looks like, you know, he's got that mustache. You're going to know. And I just wonder, I mean, it just seems like it would be really easy for us as a consumer to identify bad guys if we could just find a way to make them all wear that kind of a, you know, that mustache. These are easy wins for you as a consumer. But the unfortunate reality is that in the world, bad guys don't always look like Snidely. They don't always look like that cartoon guy. In fact, the most successful villains look just like the good guys. Did you know that? The most successful bad guys, the most successful frauds look just like the good guys. And that's what makes them so successful. That's why they're so good at what they do. I mean, how many times have you ever heard someone say, I never would have guessed that that guy would be the one who, and then you could just fill in the blank. Well, why wouldn't you have ever guessed that? Well, because he just is so normal. He looks just like everybody else. I mean he used to be a dog catcher. He was a boy scout leader. He volunteered here. Or he volunteered there. He was an elder at the church. He was just a normal guy. I never would have picked him out. You see, it's the normal people who fool you, isn't it? They're not the people who walk around with the handlebar mustache. <laughs> I should be careful. <laughs> not to say if you have a handlebar mustache, you're not normal. Although it is true that my brother has one, and I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about him. <laughs> but I mean, if they look normal, they act normal. And in fact, most often, can I challenge you with this? Think about this. I think most often, many of those people don't even think of themselves as anything other than really normal. They don't think that they're wrong. They don't think that their behavior is wrong. They don't think that the things they're doing is wrong. Do you know that generally people don't see their behavior as deviant or evil? As a general rule. I mean, some do, but generally speaking, I think people don't see their behavior as immoral or deviant. For example, this is a bit of an extreme example, I admittedly, but I want you to consider, if you were to look back at the propaganda of World War II, you'd probably see some very interesting things if you were to do that. Carolyn Kaufman made an interesting observation in psychology today, and this is what she said. She said, American propaganda, speaking of World War II. American propaganda shows a swastika-bearing boot crushing a church. So, a swastika-bearing boot crushing a church. Or a swastika-bearing arm stabbing a dagger through the Bible. Meanwhile, the Nazis were painting Hitler as a Christ-like figure wearing a cross and bearing a sword to vanquish the evil dragons representing Germany's enemies. Did you hear that? To the Nazis, it was the Western world that was wrong. To us, it was the Nazis who were all wrong. They were somehow able to justify the evil of genocide as doing the work of God. That's how perverted and twisted their minds were. They had found a way to justify that in their own minds. They were convinced that they were doing the right thing. They were genuine. They were just genuinely wrong. They were genuinely mistaken, weren't they? I right, Think about this one. What about the Pharisees of the time of Christ? Were they any different? I mean, they loved their religion. They loved their tradition. And they were convinced that they were protecting their religious tradition from Jesus, whom they thought to be a fraud and a charlatan. And I think they were genuine. I think they felt they were doing the right things. In fact, we know that they justified what they were doing as moral and rational, even while they crucified the Son of God. They were just genuinely mistaken. They were wrong. And I want you to know that it's the same in the church. There are unsaved people who attend church every single week. You look at them, and they look like they are just fine. In fact, they think themselves that they are just fine. They think they're moral. They think that they're upright. They're genuine. You see, the unsaved don't always know that they're not saved. That's one reason why you have so many people who are. Hungry for spiritual experience. That's why you have so many people who rush to a place where they can find some form of euphoria that they feel from a particular worship experience. They rush to a place where they might find some sort of exhilaration from a particular spiritual expression because it provides for them a sense of validation that their faith is genuine. Meanwhile, when they're outside the church, they're unloving to their children, they verbally assault their wives, they're sexually deviant, They're drunk, they're dishonest in their dealings, they're proud, they're not submissive to their employers, they're not submissive to other leaders, yet they somehow find a way to redefine their behavior to make it sound as though it is moral and in some cases even noble. Did you hear that? They find a way to redefine their behavior to make themselves look moral and even noble. Maybe they minimize. Or distort the effect that their behavior has on others. They probably have a distorted view of their own Christian testimony, of their own Christian witness. I'm just fitting in so that I can minister to these people. Don't you love that one? Well, I go to the bars because that's where all the unsaved people are. I have to minister to them. I'm not ever going to be able to minister to them if I don't fit in. Maybe they find a way to make their behavior seem like a rational response to something that someone else or maybe even you have done to them. You know what that one sounds like? Well, you drove me to this. If you didn't do this, I wouldn't do that. It's not a big deal. It's not that big of a deal. They used to do it in the Bible. Have you heard that? Whatever it is, they provide evidence that they aren't truly saved. I want you to hear that, okay? They're providing evidence that they aren't truly saved. And they probably can't even see it of themselves. They don't even have the ability to discern that of themselves. And if they had little mustaches, they'd be easy for you and I to spot. But the truth is, they don't. They're just normal people just like you and me. Well, after nine full months, we've reached what will be our final message in the book of James. Today is the last day. And I don't know where we're going after this. We're going somewhere. And uh, as soon as I find out, you guys will all be the first to know. Tune in next week and, and we'll know. But over the last nine months, we've said more times than I can count that James introduces us to a series of tests to help determine the genuineness of our faith. And it's my prayer that after nine months of making our way through the book of James that each of you here in church today has seized the opportunity on many occasions to examine your faith very closely. It's my prayer that you've paused as you've heard the Word of God to examine your hearts. And it's my prayer that you've been continually examining yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's what James wants us to do. I mean, did you pass the test of blame and temptation? Did you pass the test of the proper response to the teaching of the Word of God being not only hearers only, but also doers? Did you pass that test? Do you do that? Did you pass the test of genuine love? What about the test of the use of your tongues? Did you pass that test? Does your tongue spit out vile language and hurtful talk to cut other people down? Is yours a lying tongue? Did you pass that test? How did you do with that? What about the test of your affection for the things of this world? Did you find that you love the things of this world more than you love your relationship with God? These and many other tests you've encountered over the last nine months, and I just wonder, have you asked yourselves, how did I do with that? The unfortunate truth is that our own self-evaluations aren't always the most accurate. As we noted earlier, we developed some mechanisms to help us rationalize and to justify and to deflect the reality of our behavior. And what it means. And so fittingly, James concludes his letter this morning by challenging those of us in the church body to bring those people back. He says, Bring them back. If you or someone you know suffers from false or dead faith, bring them back. That's the message that James has for us. I want to take you now to James chapter 5. We're going to take a look at the last two verses, verses 19 and 20. And this is what James says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I'd like to start this morning by helping you understand this word wander in verse 19. It's this verb here that's going to define the entire closing passage. It's going to draw this whole entire book together, so I want to make sure that you get this. And there are several things that are at work here, so I'm going to spend a little bit more time with it than I typically do. So if you just bear with me and let's work our way through this, you're going to be glad that we did this. It's the Greek verb planao. That's what this word is, and you'll see it translated several different ways in the New Testament. It's the word planao. Now, one use of the verb planao is in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 12, and this is what Jesus says. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has planao. A man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray. Planao. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? So here in Matthew chapter 18, we see one use translated, gone astray. This is the verb planao. Maybe your translation says wander. That's how the ESV obviously translates it here in verse 19, where it means to wander off as a sheep may wander. Try to picture that in your mind's eye. Go there with me this morning. Maybe there's this sheep that was with the flock and he was with the shepherd and as they were grazing and as they were making their way through the fields, he became distracted by something and then he just kind of wandered off. Think about that. He just kind of wandered off. Maybe he saw this distraction that looked good to him, he decided to follow it, and he wandered off. Or maybe he was eating a really nice piece of grass, and he didn't just, you know, he didn't want to just get up and leave it while the rest of the flock went away, and so he stayed there and now he's lost. Imagine that. He's wandered off from the rest of the flock. In any event, that's what's happened. He's become separated from the group. That's one use of this verb planao. And friends, I just want you to know that I just feel like that's the way it is quite often, don't you? Think about those people that you know, that you've seen in church, that you've seen in your lives, who have at some point been really into the Word of God. They've really been into the things of God. And the next thing you know, they've just kind of wandered off. Have you ever been there? Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you have even done that yourselves. People in the church with good intentions sometimes become distracted. Sometimes they become sidetracked from the truth. They were intently focused on their faith and something came up and they just wandered off. Maybe they got a new job that requires a lot of travel for them, and so it's just a distraction, and they have wandered off from church. They've wandered off from their relationships with people in the body of Christ, and they don't come around much anymore because they're traveling so much. Maybe they've gotten into a new relationship with someone who is either weak in their faith or not saved at all, and they've become distracted, and they've just wandered off because they're so into their new relationship. I want you to know that there are a lot of Christian men and women who have become involved with non-believers, or if you prefer, marginal believers, and they have wandered off from the truth. They have become distracted by their new love interest, and they have completely forgotten about their first love. It happens all the time. They just wandered off. Do you know what else I believe has caused people to wander off? Do you know what else I believe has caused people to become distracted? I believe COVID has, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. It's become a huge distraction. It's become a mini faceted distraction. There are so many aspects that can serve as a distraction. So many different aspects of COVID. But people have become distracted and they have just wandered off. And that's one use of, of the word planao, And it's a perfectly acceptable use. But let me show you another use now. A couple chapters later in the book of Matthew, when you get to Matthew chapter 22, there's this group of religious people uh, known as the Sadducees, and they have approached Jesus in an attempt to trip him up. They, they used to love to do this. Now, just to set the context for you, the law of Moses taught that if a married man should die before he and his wife were able to have children, that the man's brother should marry his wife and the two should produce children together. Now, so the Sadducees, with this in mind, the Sadducees approached Jesus and they said in chapter 22 and verse 25 of the book of Matthew, listen to this, they said, now, there were seven brothers among us, this is the Sadducee speaking to Jesus, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother, so too the second one and the third, down to the seventh, they all married this lady and died, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? And I just kind of feel like you know, maybe Jesus should have answered the question by responding something like this. If a man is married to your brother, and he dies, and then he marries another brother, and he dies, then the brothers three through seven are progressively more and more stupid if they keep marrying her. Am I right about that? But Jesus didn't say that. I want you to see his response. This is what he says in verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are planao." See that? You are wrong. You are plana'o because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. Do you see that? So you are plana'o because you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. This is so interesting to me. You are plana'o not because as the sheep you have become distracted and wandered off, but you are wrong. And that's what makes you plana'o. And why is it that they were wrong? It was because they did not what? They did not know. You see? They did not know the Scripture. They did not know the power of God. They had no knowledge. They just didn't know. They thought they did. They thought they understood, but clearly they did not. And in this case, Jesus uses the verb planao not to say that they had wandered, but to say that you're wrong. You're making a mistake. You're in error. They had a wrong understanding of the resurrection. They had a wrong understanding of the scripture. They had a wrong understanding of the power of God. Friends, listen to me. There are many people whose intentions are good. There are many people whose intentions are noble who just believe the wrong things about scripture because they don't know. They don't know the power of God and so they believe the wrong things and what they do is they create a huge market for people who teach wrong things they don't know what the word of God teaches and so they are drawn to people who teach what they want the word of God to say did you hear that they're drawn to the people who teach the word of God the way they want to hear it He says what I want the Word of God to mean, and so I'm going to listen to Him. They are attracted to instruction that says what they want to hear, whether or not the instruction is what the Word of God intended. May I just suggest to you that sometimes the instruction that we need the most is the instruction that we want to hear the least. That's another use of the word planao. But the predominant use of the word planao in the New Testament is the one you see Jesus use in chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. And it's here that Jesus is speaking of the end times. And the disciples said, Master, when are all of these things going to happen? And in verse 11 of chapter 24, Jesus says this. He says, many false prophets will arise and they will planao." What does it say? Many false prophets will arise and they will lead many astray. They will planao." Do you see this? This is so important. The New King James Version translates this as they will deceive many. They will lead them astray. They will deceive many. And I think both of those are good. But what it does is it communicates to us a deliberate deceit intended to lead astray, intended to entice people away from the truth and to draw them away. It's the type of deceit that we see in false religion, in false teaching, It's the kind of deceit that Paul calls the doctrine of demons. It's the deceit that's designed by Satan to lure us and to lead us away and to draw us away from the truth. It's a lie and it's a deception. And it draws us away from the truth. So here in verse 19 of chapter 5, I want you to know that it would be perfectly acceptable for us in James to translate this verb planao in any of those terms that I just defined for you. Or in any of those ways, it could be a wandering away, it could be a lack of knowledge, it could be ignorance, it could even be deception, but no matter how you translate it, the point is very clear that there's a departure from the truth. Do you see it? You've walked away. You've walked away from the truth. Now there's one final aspect of this verb that I want to help you understand. James uses here in the Greek a conditional clause that is structured in a way that it assumes that the departure from this truth is going to happen. This is important for you to understand, okay? It's important for us to get this. So if we were to go back to verse 19 and look at that again, if you would put that up for me, it says this, it says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth and someone brings him back, and I'm just going to stop right there. The use of the grammar in this verse leads me to believe that a better way to translate this verse to make sure that we capture what is known as the subjunctive mood of this verb planao." would be for us to translate it this way. Listen, my brothers, whenever anyone among you wanders away from the truth. That's a better way to translate that. Whenever anyone among you wanders away from the truth. It seems like a subtle difference. Why are you splitting hairs, Scott? I think it's very important. James is not so much saying if this ever happens. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying when this happens. And it will. Why is that important? I'll tell you. Do you know that the family dynamic is just so fragile, isn't it? Do you know that it's true of the church? The family dynamic of the church, the community aspect of the church is just so fragile. Consider this. Consider the times that you've been hurt at church, you've been hurt in church ministry. When you minister beside someone for a number of years, when you're in the trenches day after day working together, And someone that you love and that you've worked with for so long wanders off or is found to be in error or is deceived and is led away, that really hurts, doesn't it? And you think, "How how could he do that? How could he have done that? How could he just get up and walk away? Think about that in your own family. If you have a brother or a sister, maybe you have a parent or a spouse who suddenly... And seemingly, without any explanation at all, goes off the deep end and walks away from the truth. Doesn't that hurt? Maybe you've been married to someone who you believed was a genuine believer, and then you've seen him just get up and walk off. And they've left you standing there holding the bag, and you feel like, man, this hurts so bad. Those scars can be very, very deep. And the message from James is this. Don't be blindsided by that. Don't be stunned. Friends, hear me. Understand that that happens to even the strongest families. I want you to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that your parenting was bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad husband or a bad wife. It doesn't necessarily mean, if it happens in the church, that your teaching was bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that your shepherding and the care that you showed to the people who got up and walked off was wrong. Don't let it go too far. Don't let it drag you too far down. You don't need to be all broken up about it. James is saying it's going to happen. Just be prepared. Just know that it's going to happen. And what are you to do? Well, look at the last part of verse 19 again. It says you do what? Bring them back. Bring them back, it says. And this word paints such a great picture for us. Picture the shepherd of Matthew 18 with me again. Let's go there again in our mind's eye. If the sheep becomes distracted and the sheep wanders off, Jesus says that the shepherd does what? He leaves the 99, doesn't he? He leaves them on the mountainside and he goes back to find the one sheep that is lost. Now I want you to follow along with me. Imagine that in your mind's eye. Here it is. The sheep has wandered off from the rest of the flock and the shepherd has left them in the relative safety of the group dynamic. He walks off, he goes and he finds the one sheep that was missing and when he finds the sheep, he takes his rod and he beats him. Is that how it works? It's not what it says, does it? That's not what we do. He doesn't shout at him. He doesn't stomp on him. Of course not. Gently and kindly, he uses the rod to just guide him and turn him around. That's what the rod is for. He places the rod in front of the sheep and He uses it to turn him. He doesn't use the rod to inflict pain or to run the lost sheep down or to beat him or to do anything negative to him. What does Psalm 23 tell us about the great shepherd's rod and staff? What do they do? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do you have a loved one who's wandered off? Do you have church members who have wandered off? Parents? Kids? A spouse? That's how you turn them. That's how you turn those who have wandered off. That's how we turn those who don't know. That's how we turn those who are deceived. We go to them and gently and lovingly, we turn them and we guide them. Do you see that? Those of you who have been with us throughout the entirety of the book of James know that sometimes the tests of faith have been a little bit strong. And sometimes the teaching has been a little bit strong. And I don't know, maybe... You sat through all of those tests, and I doubt very few of you did this, but maybe you had weeks where you needed to pause, or I'm sorry, maybe you had weeks where you, just after the whole entire book of James, you feel reassured and you feel affirmed in your faith. I'm great. I passed all those tests. I'm great. And if that's you, that's fantastic. I'm I'm happy for you. But I suspect that more of you are like me, and you had weeks where after you heard the message, you needed to pause and you needed to say, man, I really do get it wrong a lot. Have you ever said that to yourselves? I really get it wrong a lot. I mean, am I even really saved? Maybe you've seen things that cause you to worry about the genuineness of the salvation of a family member or a friend as we've gone through the book of James. Maybe you feel like someone that you love is wandering off or just doesn't know. Or maybe someone you love is deceived. How should you handle that? You go to them gently. You go to them lovingly. And you turn them. And you redirect them. And with love and compassion, you bring them back to the flock. You guide them back. Well, why should you do that? They may have wandered off. You've got 99 more sheep to take care of, don't you? Why should you do that? Take a look at verse 20. Because whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen. Friends, the bottom line is that going astray from the truth leads to death. The sheep alone in the wilderness without the protection of the flock, the sheep alone in the wilderness without the protection of the shepherd, he's easy prey. That's why it's so important that he be turned back and make his way back to the security of the flock. Do you see? I want you to know that people who depart from the truth are easy prey for false teaching and deception. They're on a path that leads to eternal death. They're on a path that leads to eternal separation from God. And the problem is, most of them don't even know it. They've never examined their faith in the book of James. They don't have those little mustaches so that when they look at themselves in the mirror, they can see that things are not right. They're convinced that everything is okay. Okay. I read a poll this morning which really jumped out at me, and this is why I include it this morning. It reported that somewhere between 72 and 75% of all Americans think they're going to heaven. What do you think when you hear that? 72 to 75% of all Americans think that they're going to heaven. What about you? Do you believe that 72% of all Americans are going to heaven? I tell you, it's certainly not consistent with the instruction of Scripture, is it? Jesus Himself says what? The gate is what? It's narrow. It's a very narrow gate. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Not most. It doesn't say most find it, friends. People don't understand how lost they are. They think they're fine. And as believers... It's our job to bring them back. They're just wandering around out there. And it's our job to bring them back. It's our responsibility to use the Word of God not as a tool of entertainment, but as a tool to turn them and guide them back to the truth. Root River Church should be a church that leads people to the truth. It should be a group who reaches out To the lost and the wandering, to the distracted, to the unknowing, to the deceived, and we should lead them back so that their souls can be saved from eternal death. Can I encourage you if you have a friend in your church body, if you have a loved one in your family who's wandered off, go get them and bring them back. Be loving. Be gentle. Be patient. And if they try to run away, go get them. If they run away again, go get them. Don't let them go. Stay with it. Be patient. Continue to lovingly and gently guide them back to the safety of the Word of God and the safety of the church fellowship. So as you consider our time in the book of James, I want you to remember that the whole entire book All that we've done for the last nine months, all the self-examination, all the scrutiny that was painful from time to time, all of it comes down to these two verses. We've looked closely at the genuineness of our faith, and I just want to know, why have you faithfully done that for so long? It's so that if you're found to fail the test, you can return from your wandering. That's why we've done it, isn't it? It's so that if you have failed the test, that you can return from your error to the saving of your eternal souls. It's all about reconciliation. That's what it's about. It's about getting your relationship right with God. It's about being truthful with yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't justify your behavior. Don't deflect it. Address it. And consider the fact that it may indicate that you're wandering and that you're going astray. And consider the possibility that you may be deceived and you don't even know it. So may I implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you've examined your faith and you found that you have an area of weakness, be reconciled to God and do it today. If you have a loved one, go get them. Turn them back and get them reconciled with God. Come back from your departure that your soul might be saved. Father, I thank You so much. For your kindness, which has led all souls to repentance who have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would plant a new burden in the hearts of the people here at Root River Church. To get those who have wandered away, those who may be deceived, those who may not know. Give us a new hunger to bring those people back and to turn them back that their souls, their eternal souls, might be saved. I pray, God, that if there's anybody in this room right now that can look at their lives and they can say that, yeah, at some point they've become distracted and they've wandered off or maybe they just didn't know or maybe they have been deceived by false teaching, God, I pray that you would prick their hearts right now, that they would be sensitive and repent and come back to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would restore to them the joy of their salvation. God, I just thank you for the truth of your word and the challenge that we've found these last nine months in the book of James. And I ask, God, that you would let us be a church body that, even though it is painful, that we would be continually examining ourselves to be sure that we're in the faith. We thank you now for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.